Hello, it's Manveen. Stories of Our Times is one of a stable of podcasts produced by The Times and The Sunday Times. And today, we're bringing you a treat. My colleagues, Jane Garvey and Fee Glover, host the afternoon show on Times Radio. And they have their own daily podcast too, called Off Air. We thought you'd enjoy a listen. This week, they hosted the historian Dan Snow and talked about his latest documentary, on the Black Death. Can I just mention that we have had a French correspondent? Of course you can. Well, actually, it's uh, Deborah who isn't French. Hello, ladies from a hospital bed in Annecy in France. It's annoying for you. Uh, there I was, minding my own business, on an unexceptional blue piste nearly two weeks ago. I'm just going over to our skiing correspondent. What's a blue piste? It's quite an easy one. Is it? Yeah. Is it the easiest? No, green, I think, is the easiest. Is it? Yeah. And is blue next? Uh, then it goes blue, then red, then black. OK. On an unexceptional... Blue piste, just cannot say that, nearly two weeks ago, when a patch of ice surprised me, hence me now being flat on my back with a fractured pelvis far from home. Oh, no, that's horrible. Oh, Deborah, but really, that's horrible. Uh, my French is beyond appalling, and the English rugby team, having given the staff here good reason for much derision, British radio has preserved my sanity. Just one problem, I'm not in pain except for when I laugh, and listening to you two does make me laugh. Dilemma, do I abandon you and mope, or stick with you and suffer? Yours in postmenopausal sisterhood, Deborah. Um, Deborah, I think you'll have to just just ride the pain. Although I cannot imagine what that pain is like, and if it is unbearable, just leave us for a couple of weeks until you're feeling a bit stronger. That's and also, horrible. if it's only consolation, we're really very unfunny. Uh, oh, today. most of the time, yeah, we're so, very unfunny yeah, today. So I wouldn't yeah. listen to that at all. But no. really, deepest sympathies. That is a horrible injury, mm. and I'm sure it has run through your mind that skiing's not worth it. <laughs> Well, it does make you think, doesn't it? Yes, mm. it does. Yeah, yeah. because just and a patch of ice coming up at you like that. Could be... If you're not very good, uh, like I'm not very good, uh, there's there's a, a kind of loop playing in your head all the time that is just, I'm, you know, something terrible is going to happen, something mm. terrible is going to happen. Mm. And I'm I'm not sure that I want to push on through with my own personal skiing journey to see whether either something terrible does happen or that thought goes away. So. It's funny though, it's not just things like that. So maybe it's just something that happens at, at our sort of age, but a really good friend of a really good friend of mine had just a very mundane domestic incident a couple of weeks ago that's put her in hospital. She's had any number of operations. She just had a bit of a fall. But sometimes if you fall from from the wrong height or in the wrong way at the wrong time, you can really suffer. So you know, I agree. Not and just skiing. Actually, I'd like to say... Uh, huge huge warm wishes to my lovely cousin Caroline who did exactly that she was carrying a great big basket of laundry down oh, the stairs missed the last step oh yeah pins in the legs everything really oh no yep yeah right they see that's that so if you are just just I mean I tell you what the most isn't the most dangerous place you can be uh, is it's it, it in, in, in socks the, on your stairs yep and, yeah. and also it's in the home in the home yep. yeah yeah. Right. right, that's not very cheery, cheery but we just it? say, yeah, we say, you know, get better soon. And I really hope that you're, you know, that your next holiday obviously is less eventful. Just go somewhere and lie down on a sun lounger. Uh, right, I'm going to read this one out and we don't have to dwell on the subject, Jane, because I know that we've talked quite a lot about it today. Steady yourself against something firm. Uh, dear Fee and Jane, can I just say how much of those of us who work with refugees are cheering Ganny Lineker and colleagues on for their stand? I can't do it publicly as I work for a local authority where I was grudgingly given just £40 to fund summer activities for 
for young unaccompanied asylum seekers. By putting our own money in and finding generous partners and volunteers, we did manage to provide visits, sports, arts and picnics, but it just fills me with anger at how these vulnerable children are treated. No one would want that for their child. I work with a wonderful group of impressive young people who've suffered unspeakable trauma and are housed in hostels far from home without any resident care from the age of 16. It's heartbreaking and the language we use is really important. It's cheering to hear this simple plea to do better in how we talk about refugees in a public space. Thank you, Gary et al. Thank you for reading this. Keep up the good work. You cheer me and my colleagues up. We are all women of a certain age. Well, you're doing incredibly important work. If we bobble along beside you sometimes, then that's just a lovely thing for us, actually. And I hear you. Whatever you think of Gary Lineker, his salary, his position or whatever, the conversation about how we discuss people who are trying to get to this country or other countries, escape a life, uh, is just so important. And that is where it all started. Mm, I just think sometimes too many of us forget that we're almost certainly at some level, descended from somebody who came here hoping for a better life. Oh, totally. <laughs> it's and just, why else would you come? And also, do you know what, Jane, I quite often think when this kind of, um, and it's not obviously not the first time that a row about the language around migration has gone off and people start saying, some people start saying absolutely terrible things sometimes. Those people are exactly the vociferous, ambitious, determined people who would be the first to want to leave and to try and make a better life for themselves and their families in a different part of the world had they been born in the circumstances that so many people seeking migration have been born into. So it just seems so hypocritical for those people to use their voice to be mean to others. I also do think, though, and I think I said this on the radio show, although sometimes I forget what I've said, um, that I may or may not agree or disagree with what Gary Lineker said about the use of language by uh, the government. But I just wish he had. I just wish he hadn't said it because he must have known what trouble he was going to cause for an employer that I'm really fond of and care about, the BBC, and I know a lot of other people in Britain really care about the BBC and particularly understand at the moment how many challenges it's got and he just hasn't helped. Who would you think would be an acceptable person to say that? Oh, no, no, it's not. Because you could argue that... I don't think think anyone accepting over a million quid from an employer that is fighting for its life in terms of its relationship with the government at the moment... I don't think Gary Lineker has helped the BBC very much by saying what he said at the time he said it. I simply don't believe he's an intelligent man. I simply don't believe that he didn't know what controversy he was going to cause. But but I throw this into the mix. Uh, would it not be true that uh, during the campaign for equal pay at the BBC, it would actually have been nice to hear from extremely well-known people of both you know, male and female colleagues who worked right at the top end in the six-figure salary department with millions of squillions of followers on Twitter. Well, we didn't, though, did we, really? No. Uh, right, uh, this is all about Richard III. Oh, no, this is important. Oh, I'm, I'm very is... glad that Louise sent this. So this is from, this is from Louise Seymour. 
who says, just a quick email because I don't want Jane to get a pub quiz question wrong. Heaven forbid. I'm sure she said on Monday that one of three funerals the late Queen attended was that of King Richard III. I did and I was wrong. A couple of things. There was no funeral for Richard. The only ceremony allowed was the reinterment of his remains in a new tomb in Leicester Cathedral. It was a big old ceremony but not a funeral service as such. Also, the Queen definitely didn't attend. She delegated to Sophie, Countess of Wessex. Benedict Cumberbatch. Now, of course. Uh, the Duchess of Edinburgh. So much to catch up on. <laughs> I'm amazed I got that right. Benedict Cumberbatch was there based on the fact that he apparently is some very distant descendant and once played Richard III. <laughs> I was lucky enough to be working for Leicester City Council, says Louise, and was involved from the point we were giving permission for the university's archaeology service to dig up the social services car park. The social workers were not pleased, as you can imagine, particularly as the city mayor said at the time they were more likely to find the bone fragments of a Kentucky Fried Chicken takeaway... <laughs> And the lead archaeologist said he would eat his hat if they found Richard III. And they did. And they did. She goes on to say, happily they found him. And then we went on an amazing journey to prove that it was Richard. Um, I'm glad you had such a good time doing all of that. Uh, it does sound like a very hectic year and a bit. And Louise ends by saying anyone who knows anything about construction and high profile projects will understand that when I said, when I say that I went grey that year, although you would never know with my six weekly visits to the hairdresser. Uh, I'm very impressed it's only six weekly visits because I'm on about, I have to go about once every month at the moment. Well, I'm, I'm about five. Are you? Yeah. yeah. I, six and I really start to feel it. Mm. When are we going to stop dyeing our hair? Well, we'll involve you, Louise, in that conversation because I'm not, I'm not stopping for the time being. No, I do love that quote. You're more likely to find a Kentucky Fried Chicken yeah, takeaway. Oh, it's Richard the Third. Just imagine some of the conversations around that. And I stand corrected. And I think I actually picked up that tidbit from the socials. So it just shows you. Um, and also, it's just fantastic that somebody with absolutely all the knowledge was listening. So really appreciate that. Do you know what else I saw on socials yesterday, which knocked me sideways? What? Genuinely. Was that apparently there was somebody on TikTok had said... This was then repeat reported on Twitter that they knew someone who thought that the numbers on a toaster dial, yeah, were related to the amount of toastiness that would be applied to the bread or bagel or whatever it might be, rather than to minutes. Oh, I've always thought it was the amount of toastiness, and so have I. I is it minutes? It's minutes. Is it always minutes? It's minutes. I had absolutely no idea. Well, I'm amazed that both you and I have come to such venerable years. I am nearly 150 years of age. With that mistaken knowledge. I thought it just meant five was very, very dark, three was a bit medium and two was flabby. No, I'm going to approach toasting my bagel tomorrow morning in a whole new way. Okay. I tell you, what, I'll get I might impatient stand by now. with a timer. I'll get very impatient. Will you? I don't okay. like the idea of having to stand looking at my toaster for five minutes. Well, you don't do it for five minutes. Why would you? Well, well because be no, cooked. you do. You do. Yeah. No, I like a. See that? No, they're wrong, Jane. Because it's not five minutes. I'm quite often at the high end of the dial, and it's not five minutes. <laughs> well, you're at the higher end of the dial, all right. <laughs> <laughs> 
A quick one here from Joe, uh, who says, catching up with Off Air this week as I walked my two Labradors sloping and sliding by a muddy lake. I got rather overexcited on a number of occasions at things you were chatting about and nearly went for a Burton, if I'm still allowed to say that. And I thought, are you? What I mean, what does that come from, going for a Burton? Uh, Is that because Richard Burton drank a lot and fell over? Isn't there another Richard Burton? Something to do with opera? I don't know. Composer. I've never stopped to think about what going for a Burton means. Gone for a Burton. That's gone for a Burton. Uh, and maybe it's one of those phrases that we've been using it without understanding oh that there's yeah. something wrong with it. Gosh. Yeah. You better get back in touch, Joe. Uh, Joe also says uh, that she's got in touch this time because of the mention of the lady shed. Uh, no plug, she says. Well, it is kind of. Our podcast, Rich Pickings, comes straight from my podcasting partner, Nina's Garden Shed, which has bookshelves and armchairs and is a very nice place to record from. And last week, we had the ultimate praise of our guest, James Alexander Sinclair, telling us that he enjoys listening to us after listening to you. Anyway, the point is we love a shed and everyone should have one. Uh, she goes on to say, I got very, very excited last month at your mention of Commissario Brunetti, Donna Leon's hero. And uh, she's attached a video of the opening night of the Venice Carnival from the actual terrace belonging to Commissario Brunetti. Uh, when I say actual, I mean the spot used for the TV location. It often happens that when one's in the bathroom minding one's own business, there'll be a plaintive, Is das Haus von Commissario Brunetti? call from a hopeful German visitor who's come all the way to find this location only to discover, as so often happens in this watery city, that you need to travel half an hour back to the other side of the Grand Canal in order to view it. Now this is because Commissario yeah. Brunetti is one of the most successful long-running crime dramas in Germany uh, where the rights were sold. Oh, they've got a TV show there. So they've got a TV show that, that keeps... And do you remember we had this conversation about strange places where a crime novel becomes really famous without the people yeah. around them really Knowing understanding it. it. There are German series set in Cornwall as well, aren't there? Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. I think the Chamomile Lawn. Right. No. Yes, I think wasn't it the writings of the of that novelist? Mm. Anyway. Uh, but that just made me laugh uh, because uh, I was also wondering if I'd be able to watch, because obviously I love Commissario Brunetti, would I be able to watch the German version with English subtitles? Obviously written about Italy or is that too much of a journey to be taken on do you think I'm back in Brexit <laughs> I understand a word of that um, let's, let's just involve uh, Paul in Chelmsford uh, I know you wanted pictures of she sheds with their soft furnishings, wall coverings and wicker chairs, but I want to offer my man cave. More brutal plain white walls, drab grey blinds, tools hanging from the rafters and the obligatory work made. It's all, it's all a bit of a mess as I'm building a model railway and the danger of having a man cave is I no longer put my tools away. Um, Paul, thank you. Uh, yes, it, yours is a very butch world indeed and one I wouldn't dream of entering. But thank you very much indeed for sharing it with us. He was the bloke I met on the gondola yes, going up the mountain him. in Bansko. Yeah, he's, he's yeah. Hello, Paul. Yes. Yeah, nice to have you he's on board. He's obviously not forgotten you, has he? Mm. 
Or holiday flirtation. Who knows where it might <laughs> Do lead. You, know you always think that literally whenever I talk to a man <laughs> that, that, that there's some kind of relationship's going to follow. We had a really interesting conversation about gentrification, about knife crime outside of London. Gentrification and knife crime. <laughs> All on the gondola, on yeah, the way it's, up. It's not that flirty, is it really, when you put it not like really. that? Not really. I think we had talked about the legalisation of helmets across Europe as well. Uh, Molly says, I'm not sure what's been going on in the last 24 hours, but last night I hopped into a bubble bath with a hot, with a chocolate mousse pot. Uh, it was a rare treat. She was, I should say that she it, she was eating it. It was a rare treat for me to eat in the bath. And I was listening to Fern Cotton's podcast, which began to go into sudden detail about the distinctive tang of fox poo. As you can imagine, not much of the mousse was enjoyed after that. No, I can imagine. And though Fern's onto something, that is a particularly vile stench, isn't it? Uh, this afternoon, as I sat working from home i decided to heat up a slice of carrot cake as an afternoon treat while listening to you both and talk almost immediately turned to pustules i must admit i had to put you both on mute to eat the cake i got through in the end is this some demonic sign from the universe to tell me to stop having sweet treats no molly is no sign um you just go on enjoying your treats in the bath i don't actually i remember a great joy before i needed glasses to read was to read in the bath and now I just can't do that anymore. How did you deal with the steam? Well, no, because I didn't need glasses to, to read from, just read a book. Oh, I see. Yeah, so it was the whole long and, sight and thing. And since the glasses have come on, you can't. It takes that little joy away, doesn't it? Another yeah. thing that you just learn to live without. But also, why? how come you could be comfortable reading in the bath? Because you're absolutely minute and... Well, didn't you slip down? Did you have one of those sticky things at the top? A special thing. <laughs> Stuck you? me to the top of the bar. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, do you know what? That's what you should. That's what you should mark it later. In life. What would you call it? An, <laughs> an in bath harness. <laughs> Midget pad. Yes. <laughs> be all right. <laughs> so um, I'm. I'm more thinking it's something you attach to the taps at one end. And some kind of firm piece of furniture at the other. Hmm. And it just kind of lifts you up and holds you, you know, like a hammock so can, across the bar. Like a bob about gently. Yes. As the waves ebb and flow. Yep. And you think. Well, maybe just get an in bath chair. Am I in Santorini or am I still at home? Mm. As I glance up at my bottle of matey. Matey. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I tell you what, the whiff of romance is never going to die in your household. You should try some Badidas, shouldn't you? Do you remember that advert? Badidas happen after a Badidas bath. And I always wondered when I was about eight. That sounds terrible. God, what? What awful fate's going to befall this pretty woman? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dear 
Dan Snow, the historian, is our guest. And his documentaries, they're already running, actually, aren't they, on Channel 5? They already have to go on the internet now and find them, yeah. My Five. Uh, And they're all about uh, the Black Death. And um, I did not know that the Black Death came to our shores via a quiet place in Dorset. It looked absolutely idyllic. Just explain exactly what happened. Well, we think. Obviously, it's quite hard to know. We think it essentially came into Weymouth. In fact, it was a a suburb of Weymouth at the time, a little fishing village. Mm. And it arrived there, we think, from southern France in the hold of ships. So the interesting thing about um, the the pandemic disease... And we, I talked about this a lot on the on my podcast history at last during the pandemic. Is each pandemic sort of reflects the world in which we're living? So this recent pandemic affected disproportionately, as we now know. We've rehearsed it all. It affected the old. It particularly affected um, people with you know obesity and things like that. Well, we live in an old, quite obese world at the moment. Now, in um, 14th century Europe, it was a, a place of coastal trade of small boats coming um, up, beetling up the coast from Bordeaux, possibly carrying wine to do with the English affliction for French wine, and rats travelling in the cargoes. Wet, damp cargoes, perfect places for rats to travel. So it's you know the technology of the time, the economy of the time, the, the patterns of life at the time then are reflected in the kind of pandemics we get. So in the 19th century, we get these kind of Asiatic dysentery, the cholera and stuff. We get these Asiatic diseases from empire, soldiers coming back from these imperial uh, missions out, out to these. So, it, uh, the, but yes, the 14th century was about the reasonably slow pro... Well, actually, in retrospect, I guess quite quick. I mean, the whole of Britain was basically covered in about a year. But it goes from village... So from Weymouth, it just makes its way up through Dorset. And we're able to trace that with these amazing documents that survive. These sort of almost like parish records, not quite, but... And they, they say, you know, in this month, one person died and we redistributed his uh, will. This is what we did. But they're all sets of property, of course, and land. And then three months later, you've got 40 people die. You know, it's extraordinary numbers, spikes in the number of um, mortality, in, in mortality. And then it hits big cities and then it kind of, and then it, it, London and Bristol get hammered. And then the north of England was fine for a while and then it eventually succumbed as well. But it never got to Scotland, never got to Ireland. Well, no, I think it, I mean, it did get to Scotland. And, and I think it, we, we the, the records are less good. But but we think it touched, well, we think it touched Scotland Island for sure, uh, and and there's certain uh, it, there's certain reasons that certain communities come off slightly better. We think around you know the, the number of rats, for example, rats I didn't know are are, are not native to the UK. They are tree dwelling animals, so it's another kind of aspect of medieval life. They loved these wooden houses with thatch and these wooden beams. It, it was that genetically they're rats are kind of culturally predisposed to seek those kind of environments. There is so much, I have to say, if you've got youngish children, I think they'll quite enjoy some of the I know. truly diabolical I think detail. Love it. it's, funny yes. that. it's funny, we, we obsess with medical... The medical history always does very well. I'm and not I think, surprised. If you get far enough away from it, it becomes funny. And of course, actually, mm. you're describing the most tragic and appalling of thing. And actually, you do it's... make that clear. I want to know, at okay, one point, good. there is a I'm detail <laughs> where you say that um, people were in such agony, they were barking like dogs. That is this was no way to die, was it? Yeah. If there is a good way to die, it wasn't this. No, I think this was a particularly bad way and this the, the, the lack of being able to do anything about it of course the instinct the, the ignorance the you know uncertainty we we in york we came across wills where it seems fairly clear that the person writing the will was about to die because then you get the kind of stamp going this will was enacted a, a week later so it could just be coincidence but and you know you you can see as you're dying in pain you're trying to make make arrangements for your kids i mean it's just awful it is that and and it, we think it's a third to a half of of the population of this island, you know, that were killed in, in this 
very short space of time. And what did the authorities, or what could the authorities do to try to contain it? Not much. I mean, I'm quite interested. There was some sense of social distancing, but there was not, you wouldn't call it a public information campaign. I mean, the King and the Pope both seem to have sat in a room and not let anyone come near them. So we, there was a kind of, I, a sense of like this person-to-person transmission, I think. Uh, um, but on the whole, so on the whole, what the, what the king does, the state, is tries to legislate for the effects of it. So it just kind of tries to, no one's going to increase the price of bread. There's no crops being grown in the fields. The price of bread's going through the roof. And so the state spends more time just going, stop selling bread too expensively. And it's like, well, thanks, mate. You know, that's not helping. And then the other one, you know, states go, peasants aren't allowed to move around because actually it was, in some ways, it was a, it actually, those if you were lucky enough to survive, it was kind of a social mobility engine because obviously everyone suddenly needed labour mm. for their fields and enterprises. And so if you were previously quite sort of attached to the land, you had to just work, work away for your local lord, you could sort of nip off to the local town and get a better job or nip off to a neighbouring lord. So you see a lot of kind of con- trying to control, basically the monarchy, the, the, royal, the, the sort of royal government just trying to kind of suppress everything, like, let's just make, please, just go back to normal. So there wasn't much in the way of... Um, kind of prevention, although there are some things around cleaning up streets and stuff, but yeah, it's, it's not, it's, they, they didn't really know why it transmitted. And of course, in fact, everyone went off to Canterbury in particular and gathered together and, and tried to pray, you know, at the shrine there in Canterbury Cathedral, and that obviously was a sort of, you know, mass super spreading event. Super event yeah. oh how much would other parts of the country have known about what was happening? So, how would people in London have known what was happening in Bristol? Good question. Letters, um, letters, and then and then dissemination. Information was power at that point. So merchants very well connected. So there's the famous story, much later century, about the Rothschild family sort of finding out the result of the Battle of Waterloo before everyone else and buying loads of shares in London because they realised not like go through. So so speed of so, so merchants would always have quite a nifty. You know, if the king died and there was a struggle between his sons or whatever, for you you might want to just make sure you haven't got much inventory left at the moment because, you know, chances are there was going to be a bit of... So I think so you'd end up with these letters that would travel north and then they would be they would be sort of shared within communities in, in you know, in, in markets and that kind of stuff. So it was very, as you can imagine, very gabbled, very uncertain. The church was important. So the church was a sort of conduit where you could... There was some hierarchy where you could reach out to village parishes and with with a particular message. But it was the, the north of England knew what was coming. It's quite scary. York was like, mm, "We're all right so far," and then, but but they knew what this kind of absolute terrible event was going on in the south. Mm. Uh, Did to, uh, so religion is it's interesting, isn't it? Because I don't. I mean, I could be wrong, and you can contradict me. I don't think there was any kind of religious revival during COVID, was there? Well, that's a good question. I, I'm, did, did religion sustain people, or was it simply that at the time there was no alternative? Yeah. I am not a religious person, therefore I don't know. I, I remember th- people hearing reports that churches... But you never you could have just been pre-vicars going, no, we're very busy on our Zoom at the moment. <laughs> We've all been guilty of that, let's be honest, yes, claiming yes. we've got lots of Bigging online followers. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I think, yes, I, I, perhaps, yeah, perhaps that's interesting. Perhaps it's because in a time of... When you really don't have a clue what's going on, you do mm. turn to at least something that might provide... And, and there's a lot of, there were a lot of religious... People carrying trinkets, people blessing things, um, nosegays under under your nose to try to clear bad odors and smells, um, and there was a kind of and, and bits of paper with re- religious, um, you know, funny 
Christian sort of me almost memes written on them, and you'd put them next to your heart and things like that. So it, no, you certainly see uh, you certainly see a lot of that. Mm. And what about um, the after effects? The economic recovery must have been very very slow progress. Well, it was pretty slow progress, I think, and the population didn't rebound for hundreds of years. Is the, is the thinking? Uh, it's it's a bit like COVID in some respects. It does seem like it kind of accelerated change that was already in the air. So like with. I always think with COVID, you know, the high street just took another battering. Yeah. It was in trouble anyway, and it took an absolute kicking. Um, COVID, uh, digital entertainment, you know, it, it benefited. But so it seems like if you look at that sort of people, some people sort of call it feudalism, that breakup, that that was sort of slightly accelerated by the Black Death. And so it seemed, yeah, it, it sort of, what was, it magnified things that were already happening, I think. And I, yeah, I think it would have taken a long time uh, although, of course, the economy was a lot simpler back then. You know, it was not overwhelmingly agricultural, so harvests were... Uh, and and the, big, the big issue was not enough people to collect harvests. That was, that yeah, was huge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, famously, that's why you get these plague villages that are kind of pretty much abandoned. Well, yes, there's a, a very sad uh, part of the the second part of the documentary, I think, when Raksha Dave, your archaeologist yeah. colleague, goes to a completely abandoned I village. I was very jealous of that assignment. Yeah, but well, well, when they go up and you see the drone uh, footage, you can see that there was once foundations and yeah. um, beautiful, presumably beautiful homes there. And Absolutely. It's, it's actually very... We think of it as a life... Well, clearly it's more than one lifetime. <laughs> way, a lifetime Closer to me than I thought. I had no idea you'd still be able to okay. see the foundations of abandoned villages. Yes, I think that's the funny thing about history. I find so much... Of, you, you, when, you, when you meet a 100-year-old person, you start doing that fun game of thinking, who could they have met? And it doesn't take you very long, you know, to get back a long way. And I think we, we, this whole, of all our human histories has been the blink of an eye. Yeah, One of the true. things I found terrifying, Dan, was the notion that the bacteria is actually still with us. Oh, yeah, knocking about, yeah. Knocking about. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it has, it has killed it people. Kills, it killed people in the 20th century, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think it kills... I mean, it's, luckily, it's antibiotics to deal with it now. It's extraordinary. I mean, it's, um, it's one of those remarkable, life-changing... Uh, that's the weird thing. I, I find it, you know, whenever I'm on the podcast, I, I find history is something that is good for my mental health because you when we focus as we just said on on migrant boats or things that anger us and upset us about the modern world uh you realize actually we should probably just quickly tip our hat to the old antibiotic revolution mm. you know like it's yeah. all of us would have lost siblings and mothers and loved ones or our own lives in childbirth you know it's it's astonishing the pain and the the, the hardship and the misery that existed until yesterday you know and it of course still does we're still a work in progress but it is fascinating that the idea that you just i mean it's like this new thing for for obesity you know this new injection oh that's done that's good, isn't it? I mean, the economist's like, oh, well, we just solved obesity. That's quite useful, wasn't it? And that, the other one that had last year, I was going on about it. Everyone thought I was mad. Is NASA, dis, like, to put that meteor off, like, redirected it. Yeah. It's like, yeah. hold on a minute. For what that did for the dinosaurs, and now we've just gone, yeah, then we've sorted that problem out. I mean, that's kind of unbelievably amazing. And we, but we rightly we focus on things that need doing, I guess. But I think occasionally you give yourself a little pat on the back. The yeah, and maybe the news agenda is a little bit skewed because you're right. Both of those stories are massive, but we've spent a lot of time talking about vastly more important yeah. than anything else that's happening in the newspapers. Well, let's hope so. Anyway, well, yes. But, um, can we just squeeze in a quick word about the yeah. approaching coronation? Oh, well, yes. So, um, what can you offer us, historian Dan? Oh, I can offer you all sorts. Funny coronations. About, oh, I tell you, history here is your home for all things coronations. Oh, no, it wasn't an uh, opportunity sorry, sorry. to plug that. Um, so, <laughs> Queen, uh, obviously, George IV's wife, barred from the Abbey, not allowed in for the coronation. 
uh, and all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, William the Conqueror, who, when he was crowned in Westminster Abbey, his guards thought the shout of acclamation was actually a shout of uprising, and they torched all the surrounding buildings. So there's loads of <laughs> okay. there's loads of good coronation content. I got yeah. plenty coming up. All right, but are neither you, of those two things will happen. Are you going? I don't think so. No invite <laughs> well, at the moment. Uh, yet, as yet. Well, you know, they better be careful because I might publish my autobiography and then everyone will be in big trouble. So, Well, don't look at me. I'm not in your autobiography. <laughs> at least I don't think so. Am I? <laughs> um, <laughs> Scribbling a new chapter, as we speak. That was Jane and Fee off air. You can find their podcast wherever you find stories of our times every Monday to Friday. I'm Manveen Rana, and I'll be back on Monday with a piece of history as we mark 20 years since the start of the Iraq War. Remember the weapons of mass destruction that were supposed to be the reason we went to war? Well, on Monday, we'll look at where the intelligence around WMD went wrong, and I'll be talking to one of the weapons inspectors who was on the ground looking for them. <laughs>